John 14 is our passage for tonight, and actually we're going to be covering the whole chapter, believe it or not. John 14, I've entitled this message, The Savior's Care, The Savior's Care, because that's really what we see in this particular chapter. And if you remember, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, right? He is having this meal, this Passover meal with his disciples. It's a very meaningful uh, meal. And they're getting an opportunity, these disciples, these disciples, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, to hear the heart of the Lord Jesus. And of course, we get an opportunity now as disciples of his, followers of his 2,000 or so years later, to hear the heart of our Lord Jesus and what was most precious to his heart on the night of his betrayal and of his then death. And if you remember, Jesus has just revealed to his disciples who the traitor is, that Judas Iscariot will be the one who will be betraying Jesus. Judas then is indwelt by Satan. He shoots out of the upper room to go betray Jesus. The disciples are still somewhat oblivious and, and confused as we see the development. They're just their emotions here in the upper room, but they're quite in shock as well. In fact, Jesus has to exhort them. If you notice in verse 1, twice, let not your hearts be troubled. And then in verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let, neither let them be afraid. You can understand the heaviness of the disciples here. It's, a loaded, uh, it's been a loaded meal. Again, they've been humbled by the act of Jesus washing their feet, right? Something that none of them were willing to do. And Jesus stoops down and he does it himself. They've received instructions about the Lord's Supper, picturing the Lord's death. They have been given the news again of the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. And then they've been told on top of that, remember that each of them, each of them are actually going to be uh, turning their backs on Jesus, including their leader, Peter. He would do the same as well. And so more than anything else, they are filled with sorrow and, and sadness. Jesus is about to die and to depart from them. They're feeling a sense of loss, as you can imagine, a sense of perplexity and, and fear of the unknown. And so without pause, really, the, the words of John chapter 14 and verse 1 and, and following address and anticipate the disciples' sorrow and sadness and perplexity. But it's not just Jesus' disciples who experience those emotions. Amen? We too, as well, experience some of these emotions in our own lives, fear of change. How many of us haven't had a fear of change? How many of us haven't experienced perplexity about the future and what is unknown? How many of us haven't experienced loneliness and isolation and the feeling of abandonment from people in our lives? And see, not only do the disciples need comfort, but so do we need comfort as well as followers of Jesus some 2,000 years later. Because, brothers, we too are often discouraged. We too are often downtrodden. We too are often perplexed and confused, feeling disconnected from God and from other people, aren't we? Well, in the midst of a, all this heaviness, it's Jesus here who now unselfishly again is thinking about his disciples. He's thinking only about what they are going through. He's thinking about their troubled hearts here in John chapter 14. And like a good shepherd, he cares for them. And he wants to care for us through John 14 as well. So let's answer this question off the bat. What counsel does the caring shepherd have for their troubled hearts? 
and for our troubled hearts today. I want you to note first how Jesus really directs their attention to something greater and higher than themselves. First, I want you to write this down. Amidst their troubled hearts, they should be comforted by heavenly promises. They should be comforted by heavenly promises. Look at this in verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, or better really, you believe in God. It's a statement of fact there. You believe in God, and then he commands them, believe also in me. And you know this, that central to the Jews, as we've seen, was the belief in the one true God, and that there were to be no rivals to the one true God. And so Jesus is making the point here, and has been making the point throughout the book of John, that he himself is God. And if they truly believe in the one true God, then they will embrace him as coming, having come from God. Now, at first glance, Jesus' exhortation in verse 1, maybe you feel this way, let not your hearts be, be troubled. At first glance, that may seem a little bit harsh or insensitive. But notice how Jesus gives, gives substance to this exhortation. Why should they not be troubled? Because it is necessary that Jesus go to the cross and depart from them in order for them to have a future hope, right? Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus says, even though I'm departing from you, by which he means his death and his resurrection and his ascension, even though he's departing and leaving, he's doing that so that he might prepare the, their home. That he might prepare their home in heaven itself. You see, it's necessary that Jesus suffer and that he die to pave the way for them to enter heaven itself. I watched a movie once a long time ago about a foreign immigrant who had come to America in the hopes of working and saving enough money to bring his family uh, in Europe back uh, to America to be with him and to make a better life and all of that. Little did he know this poor guy, the suffering that he would undergo. I mean, he went through all kinds of injustice here in, in America. He had an unjust boss who wouldn't pay him very much, who often withheld wages from him as he's trying to save for his family to come. He endured brutal living conditions. One time he was beaten as he sought to save as much as he could, often sick and hungry. One time almost dying and not fulfilling if he died the, the dream of bringing his family to America. All of this went on for some time as he struggled just to make it and just to save. Meanwhile, back home, his dear wife and kids longed to be with their, with their father and their husband. And though they missed him dearly, and it was heart-wrenching to have to wait so long. It was amazing to watch how they lived with a real sense of hope that their dad and husband would keep his, his word. And eventually, as the movie goes on, he eventually did keep his word. They were miraculously brought to America to live with their husband and their dad. You know, brothers, that's just a movie, right? On the human level. But you know, this is the, that's the kind of hope that you and I need to have about Jesus. Amen? We need to live with a sense of certainty all the more in the heavenly realms that what our Savior has promised, He is able to deliver precisely because of who He is. That we will be in heaven someday because of our faith in Jesus Christ. 
We need to live with an eschatological hope, an end times hope with our eyes fixed on the, on the future. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Rise above the circumstances. Rise above your sorrow and your sadness. Do not be troubled because recognize that I, it's ne necessary for me to die on the cross and to ascend, to rise from the dead and to ascend, go back to my father's house that I might prepare a room for you. It is necessary that I do this. I love what Pastor Mike has often said. You know, it's not about the, the here and now. It's about the what? The then and there. Brothers, listen. This is a reminder for us tonight, and it was a reminder for the disciples in the upper room, that this world is not our home. Did you hear that? This world is not our home. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship, listen to this, is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body, this physical body, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And listen to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Beloved, says Peter to these believers who are beginning to experience persecution, by the way. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, another translation puts it like this, aliens and strangers, this is what he calls believers living in this world. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, he says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So notice, we are not of this world. We are strangers and aliens, sojourners and exiles. And that eschatological mindset propels us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is going to usher us into heaven someday. Amen? And while living in this world, it all the more propels us, brothers, not to live passively and lethargically in the Christian life, but to actually live holy lives, set apart from this wicked and perverse generation, and be living for Christ. We need to live with an eschatological mindset because this is not our world. Peter says, this is not your home. So stop thinking and living like it is. Stop valuing the things that the world values. I think some of us think and live this way, though. I think wait, too, much of, too many of us put so much stock in the toys of this world, brothers. We put so much stock just being anxious and stressed out about bank accounts and property and possessions and, and prosperity and all of that, especially living in America, we who are believers living in this, in this filthy rich country, we have to guard our hearts from idolizing the making of money and property and possessions and those things. And are those things evil in and of themselves? Yes or no? No. It's when we prioritize those things, when we elevate those things above God and his priorities, when we don't invest those things into the kingdom of God and send them ahead to eternity, right? That's the problem. We have to guard ourselves. We need to put these things in perspective. And so search your heart. Are you seeking to make a living so that you can provide the basic needs of your family and invest into the kingdom of God and gospel work and all of that? If you are, praise the Lord. Or do you really think the pursuit and the procuring of all of these toys here in this world are actually going to make you happy? Are actually going to make you live with a sense of fulfillment? These are important diagnostic questions to ask, right? 
And so Jesus' first counsel for troubled hearts is this. Take comfort in the heavenly riches that Jesus will prepare for you because you belong to him. If indeed you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And scripture constantly directs our attention to heavenly realities. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Paul says to the Ephesian believers. Colossians 3.14 tells us to fix our eyes on the things above, or 3.4 rather, to fix our eyes on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. Jesus wants his disciples to live with that sense of eschatological future reality, to be comforted by God's heavenly promises. Secondly, secondly, write this down. We need to be comforted by his awesome majesty. In the midst of having troubled hearts and living in a troubled world, we need to be comforted by his awesome majesty. They are to find courage and comfort in who Jesus is. And I got some sub points for you tonight, okay? <gasps> oh, no, what? Uh, two sub points for point number two and six for point number three. Whoa, what? All right, so here's your first sub point, okay? You get some extra bullet points. His majesty is seen in that he's exclusively the only way to God. He's exclusively the only way to God. Look at verse 5. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Literally, it's I myself am. And then he says, the way, the truth, and the life. And in case there's any doubt, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, as mind-boggling as this may seem to us, Thomas is actually asking an, an honest, genuine question. But did you notice how Jesus answers him? He doesn't say, Thomas, I'm talking about heaven for crying out loud. Instead, he says to Thomas, Thomas, I can get you there. Whatever I'm talking about, I can get you there. I myself am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Once I was invited to this family camp in central California, up in the, in the mountains, in the boonies somewhere. So we drove the whole day. I think we only had our three boys at the time. They were all little. Drove the whole day, but by the time that we got to the general area up in the mountains, it was just pitch black. You couldn't see anything, and so we got lost. Couldn't see anything. I had a session that night, so I'm worried and concerned and all of that, and the kids are getting fussy and all of that, but we couldn't find anything. We couldn't even find the street to turn on to go to this particular campsite. Finally, after multiple wrong turns, and who knows how much time had gone, a couple of the, the men from the church jumped in the car from the campsite, and they came in, and they found us. And after finding us and saying their hellos and all of that, they jumped back in the car and all they said is, hey, don't even think about following your own, your own instructions, okay? Just follow us. We can get you to the campsite. We can get you there. So we just followed these guys right under the, under the campground. You know, brothers, that's essentially what Jesus is saying here, right? You may have no clue where I'm going, but Thomas, trust me, follow me. I can get you there. I can get you to where my Father is in heaven. Well, this is what makes Jesus so unique, so incomparable, so glorious, and so majestic, right? 
The glory of Christ is seen, brothers, in that Jesus originates from God, and he is exclusively the only way to God, no matter what the world is telling you. There aren't many roads and paths that lead to heaven. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can have a right relationship with God and be in heaven someday. What does Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 say? There is salvation in no one else, right? There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. His name is who? Jesus. And so we see Jesus' awesome majesty here in that he highlights his exclusivity as the only way to God. But also, second subpoint here, we see his majesty in that he establishes yet again or reiterates, reaffirms that he is God, that he is God. In verses 7 through 11, look at verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Can you believe this guy? Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is not saying here, of course, that he is the identical person as the Father. That would be modalism, right? An ancient heresy. What Jesus is saying here is that he shares the same nature the same essence and the same being as the Father. Why? Because Jesus is God, a very God. He is God. He's been establishing that, or John has been establishing that throughout his gospel, hasn't he? For 13 chapters. Now let me ask you this. Why is it important that Jesus reaffirm once again that he himself is God in these verses? Well, here's the answer. Because only someone who comes from God and is God himself is able to deliver on the promises that he's making to these disciples. No one else can. Jesus and Jesus alone is able to do that. Only one who is God. This is why Jesus has been speaking words and doing works throughout the gospel of John that only God could do. Look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Here it is. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Notice, words and works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's simply reiterating what he said back in John chapter 10, verse 25, that the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He didn't only come teaching. He also came doing amazing, mighty works which authenticated his self-claims, right? That came from his teaching. These prove that he indeed is God of very God. And so notice, in the midst of their troubled hearts, Jesus wants them to be comforted by his, his identity as God. Why? Because if he's God, then they need to look for no other. If he's God, they need to trust in his character and his promises. If he's God, Jesus is trustworthy and he's dependable. But write this down. If he's God, third main point, they need to be comforted by his spiritual blessings. They need to be comforted by his spiritual blessings. And there are at least six of these as subpoints under this main point that I want us to see. And we're going to go through them fast, yes, but I hope that they would just lead to more discussion even in your small groups, okay? He wants them to be comforted by his spiritual blessings. So, you know, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, write down that verse. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says, 
that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That wonderful passage there, 2 Peter 1.3, tells us that as an act of God's grace, God has given us beyond salvation everything that you and I need to live a godly and fruitful life. Well, in a sense, Jesus here is comforting his disciples by reminding him of some of those spiritual blessings. First, in verse 12, there is the blessing of the gospel in verse 12. There's the blessing of, of the gospel. Watch this in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. That is a staggering statement, isn't it? How could it be that anyone can do greater works than those that Jesus has done? Well, for one thing, after his departure in the book of Acts, what are the disciples doing in the power of the Spirit? They're doing mighty deeds, aren't they? Miracles which authenticate the gospel message that they are proclaiming about the one true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to me, as great as those miracles will be, there is no greater miracle than when these guys are used by God as instruments to preach the gospel and they see the dead come to life. There's no greater miracle than that. The miracle of regeneration. The miracle of, of seeing someone born again, awakened from spiritual death. Boy, we've experienced that in our own lives, haven't we? How could it be? I remember who I was prior to Jesus. How could that possibly have happened? A miracle of God, the greatest miracle of God. Regeneration. We've seen it in people that we love and friends and family, haven't we? But man, that one minute they are living a, a wicked lifestyle. They're, they're, from the human eye, there's no hope for these individuals. And all of a sudden, God steps in and they have a collision with Jesus. And there's the miracle of regeneration, right? The greatest deed the greatest miracle is the new birth. Of course, we don't really do anything but proclaim the gospel. But the gospel is like a bomb, isn't it? Like a hammer which shatters a rock. What does Romans 1.16 say? That the, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Right? Amazing that they will be God's instruments through whom God will awaken spiritually dead sinners and pluck them out of the fiery flames of hell itself. We should be comforted that this applies to us as well, brothers. That though we live in a wicked and perverse generation, and that though our Savior isn't physically, visibly with us, Jesus has given us in the Great Commission a powerful gospel message so that the miracle of the new birth may happen and that we might see spiritually dead people be awakened from the dead. What a great work. And so they are to be comforted in the absence of Jesus by the blessing of the gospel. Here's another one. We should be comforted by the blessing of prayer. We should be comforted by the blessing of prayer. Look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He's speaking here of intercessory prayer as our high priest, right? He's going to be departing from them, but he's going to have a ministry whereby they are going to be able to access the Father through Jesus Christ. 
And by the way, the Lord Jesus is not saying here that everything that they ask for, even if selfishly, will be granted to them. As long as they ask in Jesus' name as if it's some magical formula which unlocks the door to everything that they ever want, even if it's selfish requests. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus says, in my name, which is to say, in a manner consistent with who Jesus is, consistent with what Jesus says. Some of us were reminiscing the other day about how much foreign missions has changed, right? Back in the day when a friend who was going to go off, a brother or sister in Christ or a family was going to go off to the mission field. I mean, when they left, they left, right? (laughs) You weren't going to talk to them or see them maybe for the rest of of life. But now with the whole technological age, I mean, you can call them. I texted a brother who was in in Europe and another brother who was in Southeast Asia just this week via instant, instant messenger or WhatsApp, right? You can text them, you can call them, you can Zoom them every day if you choose. I mean, if, you have, if they have internet access and all of that. And you know, brothers, that is really the blessing of prayer for us before our Heavenly Father. We have a Heavenly Father who is instantly, regularly accessible to us. We have access into the very throne room of our Heavenly Father. We can commune with Him. We can communicate with Him throughout the day. What a blessing for us and even for the disciples at the time to be comforted by. That look, Jesus is going to heaven, but He's not going to head up there to be their high priest who is going to intercede on their behalf. There's the blessing of prayer. He comforts them with that. Next, there's the blessing of His Word. There's the blessing of His Word. Various verses Highlight this, so make sure you jot those down. But notice in verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. At first glance, that, those little, that little instruction seems out of place, but then he expands on what he means. Look at verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. How will they know? Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then in verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, not the traitor, said to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my what? My word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Over and over again throughout this passage, Jesus keeps emphasizing his word, doesn't he? But not only that, in connection to his word, obedience to what he says is sprinkled throughout this chapter here. And in fact, in chapter 15, we're going to see beginning next week that he'll make the point that those who truly abide in him, who remain in close relationship with him, are those who obey his word. That those who love him, who truly love him and who truly have a genuine affection for him are those who keep his commandments. Boy, this is true for us as well, brothers. God has given us a rich treasure, a rich resource in his word, but he wants us to obey it. He wants us to follow it. Why? So that we might experience his blessing. Even in a troubled world, even when we have troubled hearts, it's always right to obey the word of God, isn't it? Jesus is saying that to them. You have my word. You need to keep it. You need to obey it. You need to follow it regardless of how bad things get. 
And it's not just external conformity that God wants. God wants joyful obedience, right? Not reluctant conformity. Listen to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. For this is the love of God, writes John, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Listen, obedience to the word of God is not burdensome. Why? Because God's word is given to us, brothers, so that we might obey it for the glory of God. And so that, listen, you may be blessed. You may be here tonight thinking, man, God sure has a lot of commandments. You know what his aim is? That you would glorify him as you obey him through his word and that you would be blessed. That he would do good to you. That you would be rewarded for your obedience. Thus, it should be our delight and joy to obey his word. God also wants loving obedience, doesn't he? By the way, learn to use terminology like that, adjectives. It's not just obedience, it's joyful obedience that he wants. It's not just obedience, it's wholehearted, authentic, complete obedience that he wants. It's not just obedience, it's loving obedience that he wants. Love is a huge emphasis in the upper room, right? Of the fact that we should do what God says because we love him. Because we are filled with a sense of cherishing and treasuring of our Savior. We should obey him because we have a genuine heartfelt affection for him. And so we have the blessing of his word. Here's another one. The blessing of his Holy Spirit. We have the blessing of his Holy Spirit. Various verses there as well. As the disciples struggle with troubled hearts, what does Jesus remind them of? He reminds them that though he's not, no longer going to be there with them visibly, physically, someone else with a capital S, someone else who shares his same nature will, namely the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Notice, right, capital H, another helper to be with you forever. Helper, the parakletos, literally the one called alongside of you to encourage you, to help you, to exhort you, to rebuke you even, to comfort you. Who is this Holy Spirit? Well, he's a distinct person, isn't he? He's not identical to the Father or to Jesus. He's a distinct person. He's also a person. The Holy Spirit is not a, a thing, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not some gaseous force, right? The Holy Spirit is a person, a real person. He's also deity. He's God. He's the third member of the Godhead, co-equal with the Father and the Son, co-sharer of the same nature, essence, and being as the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit. Jesus says, my father will send you a helper to indwell you and illumine you. Look at verse 17. Even the spirit with a capital S of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you. Notice with you and he will be in you. Those are loaded words there. Okay. He dwells with you and will be in you. Up until this point, the Holy Spirit has been absolutely active and alive. He's been with them as he was in the Old Testament, by the way. I've told you before that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was alive and well and active. Amen? Amen. Alive and active and well. He empowered people for a specific time, for specific many missions. That's been the role of the Holy Spirit. He's also been with the disciples 
But notice now in Jesus' absence, he will be in them, indwelling them. Now in fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 14, the Holy Spirit will dwell within those who belong to Christ. Ezekiel 37 and verse 14. He will be their teacher who will remind them of what Jesus has said. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Wow, what a wonderful comfort for them to know that even though Jesus would no longer physically, visibly be with them, Jesus says, I have someone just as good, just as effective, just as encouraging, who will be with you, filling you, teaching you, opening your eyes to the truth, reminding you of everything that I have taught that you would walk in obedience to me. The precious Holy Spirit. Two more. There's the blessing of our hope. There's the blessing of our hope. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Notice, end of verse 18, I will come to you. End of, or middle of verse 19, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Boy, such certainty in Jesus' words, right? You will. They are to live with a confident expectation that because he will rise again, they will see their Savior again. But also, I think he's speaking of his ongoing presence amongst them. First, first of all, through whom? Through the Holy Spirit, right? That the Holy Spirit's going to come in and indwell them. But the Bible also is clear that though Jesus isn't here physically, he is still present with us nevertheless, right? Write these verses down. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27 says this to them. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, he says. Amazing new covenant language there. The Christ in you, he says, the hope of glory. And remember the great commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20? After Jesus charges the disciples about being his witnesses, he says, and lo, I am what? with you always, even to the end of the age. And Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we may confidently say, that passage says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Jesus would be with them. That is the, their hope, the basis of their hope. Finally, there's the blessing of his peace. That's the last one. There's the blessing of his peace. Look at verse 27. We love these verses, don't we? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them, neither let them be afraid. They are beginning to be troubled and understandably so. But Jesus says, I want you to have my peace. And by the way, he's talking about functional, practical peace based upon their already position in him, right? They are in Christ. They are his followers. Jesus is talking here about functional, practical peace. He also says it's not peace as the world gives. What does that mean? That it's not peace like the world speaks of. That is based upon favorable circumstances. 
that is based upon earthly material things, what you do have or what you don't have of an earthly nature. The world's peace is dependent on those things and quickly fleeting, right? Like water, it's, it's, that peace is hard to grasp. This peace is based upon Jesus' sure promises, brothers. Based upon his work of redemption that he's about to do. Look at verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Again, if they are going to have true peace and joy, then they need to trust in Jesus' words here. Trust in his promise that he's going to return for them. Boy, this is so important, isn't it? We want peace as, as men of God. We want peace as Christians living in this world. But brothers, we're not willing to fully trust in Jesus like this. To take him at his word. We want peace, the peace that surpasses all comprehension, but we're not willing to do what Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7 say. Not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let our requests be made known to God. And what is the result when we do this? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, you can have positional peace, right? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, finish it with me. We have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That is positional peace with God through Jesus Christ. You can have positional peace, but lack practical functional peace. You can live quite a joyless life, quite a miserable life, not experiencing the ongoing wonderful experience of God's blessings upon your life. Why? Because you're living anxious. Because you're not willing to cast your cares upon the Lord, 1 Peter chapter 5, because he cares for you. He wants you to cast all of your anxieties and cares upon him so that you might experience that peace. I want you to know, too, that this peace is grounded upon his victory. Look at verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, verse 30. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go up from here. Later on in chapter 16 and verse 33, we read these words. I have said these things to you, says Jesus, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, our peace is, as Christians is based upon the, the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And the only way that you and I can experience a functional, practical peace, brothers, is by living lives in the light of and on the shoulders upon what Jesus has already accomplished and finished on our behalf. Amen? Amen. That's how we may have peace. This is where a, a living, living with a real sense of peace begins. By surrendering your life to Christ and living in the light of his wonderful victory. Well, the disciples had surrendered their lives to Jesus. But what comfort and assurance they must have derived from Jesus' words. Even if he was going to depart, in retrospect, they were going to remember these words. And what comfort can we derive from them, brothers? That though we don't have Jesus physically, visibly here with us, we can be sure of his presence in and amongst us, right? Well, Peter seems later on to have caught on to Jesus' words. 
Later on, as he pens his own letter, Peter would write, no doubt reflecting on Jesus' words or some of these words in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's a powerful, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, but so many themes and Peter's words there to these believers who are beginning to experience persecution and tribulation and trouble. So many similarities to the upper room discourse and what Peter heard in that upper room discourse. Peter, on the other side, came out stronger and more and more conformed to the image of Christ with a Christ-exalting perspective, right? May God grant us that as well, brothers. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the wonderful words of our Lord Jesus in the upper room, words that are a refreshment to our hearts. Lord, we live in a troubled, wicked world. And our, if we are honest, Father, our hearts are often troubled by everything that we see. And oftentimes we're perplexed and confused. Father, I pray that we would return to these words again and again because these were the words to troubled disciples as well. Help us to live in the light of what the Lord Jesus said here. Help us to live with heavenly realities in mind. Help us to live comforted by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Spirit. Thank you for the Word. Thank you for our hope. Thank you for the peace that you have given us that surpasses all comprehension. As 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Lord, help us by your grace to cast all of our cares upon you knowing that you love us, that you care for us, so that we might experience that great sense of peace, practically speaking, that Jesus speaks of here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.